Every week, I try to find inspiration for this portion of our podcast, and every week, something comes to me. This time, it came in two forms. The first happened when I was attending my first session of yoga here in the Denver area. By the way, I almost always end up crying at the end of a yoga session because there's a lot of focus on centering, being kind to oneself, and sending out positive energy into the universe. And being kind to myself is a tough one for me. This week, the instructor told the class to remember that calm resides inside of us. And anytime we feel ourselves spiraling out of control, to come back to that inner calm. Then, just the next day, I had lunch with our realtor, who we'll have on as a guest at a future episode. And she and I talked at length about choosing happiness. It is not easy, and it needs to be intentional. It's so common to allow difficulties to steal our joy. It struck me that my yoga session learning and lunchtime conversation were essentially the same thing, but with different names. And this also ties in with career coaching and Aspen Grove as a whole. Deciding to find a new job or embarking on the career search journey or really any part of the path can be discouraging. So in this moment or any moment, even if it's not related to careers, we have to choose to practice intentionality, and it is not easy. This is something I need to work on personally, and that is one of the many things that we talk a lot about at Aspen Grove. So Sylvie and I went searching for an expert to teach us more about happiness, and we stumbled across the work of Dr. Katarina Blom. Dr. Blom is a happiness psychologist from Sweden, and her work has focused on the science and research of human well-being. Dr. Blom is dedicated to the idea that building happiness is a skill, and she has a lot to teach us about how positive actions can improve the quality of our lives. Importantly, Dr. Blum works hard to dispel the myth that thinking positive thoughts alone is enough to make us happy. She teaches that we all need to take action to create happiness in our lives. She even created a psychology gym in Sweden called Habitude, which is a place of science-based psychological training to create change in people's lives by practicing new habits and developing new routines. She is here to teach us that happiness is a skill that we can all work on. So we watched a TED Talk by her, and it was titled, You Don't Find Happiness, You Create It. She says, we all face crisis sometimes, and we all struggle. So this this is a, a human experience. Everyone goes through this. And she acknowledges that it's difficult to always be in this happy place where, you know, we're told to think positively. But she says it's not just about positive thinking, it's positive action. She says, you know that worrying won't change the situation, but you cannot stop worrying. If we could just switch our thoughts, we would. And that is something I totally can relate to. Our minds wander almost 50% of the time that we're awake. Our thoughts are automatic and they kind of have a life of their own. And it may be impossible to just change your mind or your thoughts. So she told us, how can we make positive action to make change in our lives? She gave an example. She said, if you think about something for five minutes, your mind is more than likely going to wander. However, if you hold up your hand for five minutes, you can probably do that. And it's because it's much easier to do a physical action than to do something mentally. 
She also talked about that we tend to look at ourselves as objective, rational beings, but we really aren't. We can't be. We see the world through our lens. And she said this is a good thing because if we process reality as it actually is, it would be an overwhelming experience. Cognitive biases affect how we perceive life and situations, and that's based on our own perception of everything. She also talked about negative feedback versus positive feedback. And she said that our brains prioritize the negative by almost twice as much as the positive. And so when someone says something nice to us, that's nice. But then when someone says something negative to us, that's the piece that sticks with us for the longest. And I see that in myself. I see that in other people. I even see that in famous people who have tons of adoring fans, and then they have one negative article that's written about them. And that is what sticks with them, is that one negative person or one negative opinion. She talked about our preparedness to have a negative experience is built in from our ancestors. This is negativity bias. And at one time, it helped people to survive. You had to avoid dangerous things to just be able to survive or figure out how you were going to find your food every day just to survive. When I've been in therapy sessions before, uh, my my uh, therapist has told me before that this is a monkey brain or a lizard brain. This goes back to way, way before us. She says, it's not strange to feel stressed or anxious. This is built into us. And she talks about how to cultivate happiness. Happiness is not something that you have or you don't have. Again, this is a skill. We just don't do it and we don't know how to do it. She also, which I really appreciated, talked about sometimes she's not happy. And she literally wrote the book on (laughs) how to find happiness. And she says, not even experts on happiness always can turn this knowledge into action. So Dr. Blum shared a really important concept in her TED Talk that I really liked. She shared that having healthy relationships is as important to our well-being and longevity as is exercise and eating habits. She shared, using really strong science, that happiness comes from the quality of our relationships. She said that investing in our relationships may be the most powerful tool we have to improve our own lives. That tending to our relationships and being kind to others is kind of like a physical workout or a green smoothie. Dr. Blum is very clear that happiness doesn't come from wealth, fame, fancy things, or even hard work. It comes from the practice of listening, sharing, and being vulnerable with others. What Dr. Blom said is particular, particularly powerful because she gives us some action steps and she validates that it is very, very difficult to control our thoughts. As someone who has anxiety and depression, hearing someone say to me, just change your thoughts, oh, that can be so frustrating. I know what I should do and I do all of the things, all of the things. I list the things that I'm thankful for. I try to steer my mind in a positive direction. I'm reflective and I find the positive in tough situations. I try to push away negative thoughts, but my mind really does wander and it tends to go back to the negatives. As Dr. Baum said, I find myself bracing and preparing for worst case scenarios frequently. And it's good to know that it's not just me. 
This is the way that we as humans are built. However, putting to work, building relationships in whatever form that looks like for you really does make the world a better place. I see that in myself now that I'm in a very healthy, loving relationship. By the way, happy anniversary to my sweet husband. I also see that in my strong, long-lasting friendships. I would say that outside of my husband and my mom, I only have a handful of friends that I'm super close to. But those relationships are unquestionable. I have no doubt that I can be my true self with my small circle. Intentionally sending positive messages to someone makes you feel great and it makes them feel great. You might even inspire them to do the same for someone else. This is that butterfly effect that keeps coming up in our discussions over and over again. So I challenge you, dear listener, to follow Dr. Blom's advice. Pause this podcast right now, make sure to come back, and send a kind text to someone. We'd love to know how that changed your day, your thought process, and your mood. Hi, I'm Sylvia. And this is Leslie. This is Carpe Vitae, a podcast in which we meet cool people to learn about their careers and the journeys they took to get to where they are now. We will also talk to experts to help you learn and grow in your career expedition. We hope that this podcast will inspire you to find your own version of an extraordinary life. I've always been eager to work, taking my first job uh, when I was 13 years old, a regular job, taking a bus an hour to downtown Seattle to work on a pier, which was a great experience. Uh, by the time I got to college, my brother and I started what ended up being a successful painting company. We started this mostly because we knew that neither one of us should or would be good employees for somebody else. We just knew we needed to work for ourselves. It ended up being a pretty successful company with two trucks and two painting crews. Uh, at the same time, I started working evenings driving a pedal cab, which is a big tricycle with a couch behind it, driving people around in Pioneer Square. This second job became one of my two favorite jobs ever, being a lawyer and being a pedal cab driver. As a driver, I spent my time listening to people's stories, telling them a little bit about my own story. Mostly it was about making sure people had a good time. I made a point of connecting with different bars and restaurants, mostly with the bouncers, making sure that my clients got special entrance access, short lines or back doors. I tried to make sure that my clients felt special and that they had a really good time. And I ended up having as much fun as them or more. At the start of law school, my brother bought me out of the painting company, which allowed me to pay for some of law school. I was glad to stop painting because it was really boring, but I couldn't give up my pedal cab job. I kept driving my pedal cab all the way to the end of law school. But once in law school, I became qualified for and took a job as a courtroom intern. It's a job that lasted a couple of years till I graduated. I was given my own little group of clients charged with lower level crimes. I, I worked in a couple of little municipal courtrooms uh, scattered around Puget Sound. And I worked hard for my clients. Sometimes I would show up for them on my days off, speaking on their behalf in a variety of situations, trying to help untangle them from situations they'd gotten into. Other times I'd occasionally find myself in court with a judge who was absolutely furious at me for refusing to accept a ruling and coming at the judge again and again and again until the judge threatened to have me hauled out of the courtroom. Uh, 
I was young, I was naive, and probably should have kept my mouth shut or should have chosen my battles a little more carefully. But I was a slow learner, and I continued to make the occasional judge furious for many years after my internship. Uh, the day I graduated and passed the bar, I started working for myself. It was my first job, and today, to today, it's continued to be my job. My first office was a copy room closet. It was barely large enough for two people to stand in, and I loved that space. I had some spectacular memories there and found myself firmly on the path of being a self-employed attorney. And I got to tell you, I think almost any lawyer will tell you the same thing. That first office that they had will always stick in their mind as being one of their favorite, their favorite office. My career has taken me through lots of interesting experiences since I had that start. I started off representing people charged with relatively minor crimes. My first trial started just two weeks after I became an attorney. It was a jury trial. And I had taken that client and their client's case just hours before the start of the jury trial. I didn't know anything about on that morning when I came to work and by the end of the day, I was seating a jury. Uh, it ended up being a week-long trial and uh, a spectacular experience. Unbelievably, uh, the jury came back in our favor. Uh, later, the cases became more complex. I began to handle shootings, sexual assaults, even murder cases. As time went on, I started to be called in by law school classmates who had cases going to trial, but they didn't have any trial experience, and they knew that I had lots of it. Uh, I began to help out in civil trials that classmates had, and I decided I was interested in this as well, not just the criminal practice that I'd been doing for the early years of my practice. My civil practice grew at the same time as my criminal practice. Eventually, I got to the place where I was trying uh, a death penalty case in the same year that I was litigating a wrongful death civil case, uh, which is, I think, a type of experience that few attorneys have that tend to specialize in either one area of law or not another, and these were quite distinct. Uh, it's been an interesting career that has taken me to lots of places that I might have hoped for early on, but didn't really have any reason to believe I would be able to get to. We are so very excited and so very grateful to be welcoming Blake Kramer as our first guest on the Carpe Vitae podcast. Blake is an attorney in Tacoma, Washington. He graduated with his law degree from the University of Puget Sound in 1992, and he has had his own law practice for the past 30 years. He has a diverse legal practice, which includes criminal defense and personal injury work. His career has been interesting from the start. He has worked on many high-profile cases, including one of the last death penalty trials in Washington state, which resulted in the state Supreme Court overturning the conviction of a longtime death row inmate. He is known for taking on cases that most attorneys wouldn't, and he uses his voice to stand up for people who need it the most. In addition to his legal career, he finds time to ski every Thursday during the ski season. He is a gifted photographer and a very active member of his community. He has volunteered his time to support causes that are close to his heart, including hospice, a pediatric HIV organization, and countless other organizations as well. Blake is someone we want the whole world to know. Thanks so much for joining us, Blake. I'm going to just jump right into asking you questions because I can't wait to know more. 
Can you tell us what career changes you've experienced in your journey and how have these changes evolved you as a person and as someone in your position? Sure. First of all, thank you so much, both of you, for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be here and talking with you about the sort of career experiences I've had and the things you're interested in. You know, one thing that was really a central change to my career was back in, I had a tragedy in my life in 2004. My wife was dying from a brain tumor. And in the years leading up to her death, I was focusing more and more time on her care. Really in the year leading up to her death, I began to cut down on the work that I was taking to allow myself more time to be with my wife. And the thing was, as I cut down on my caseload, I noticed something unexpected. As I kept cases that were more interesting and more rewarding to me, I noticed that my income wasn't going down. I also, as much as I thought it might, and I noticed that I was enjoying working the time that I spent working more. Uh, so after my wife died, I didn't return to the type of lawyer I'd been before and the type of business model I'd been running where I was just grabbing every case that I thought I could work on, every case that I thought I might be able to help out with. Instead, I started to become more selective and I became much less concerned with growing my income. And I found that I enjoyed my work life much more. And I found that, and oddly enough, the more fun I was having, the more I found that my income actually began to accelerate uh, unexpectedly. But still, even though my income was going up and I was enjoying my work, I still was really careful about keeping the number of cases that I was taking down to uh, a manageable level, uh, enough that would allow me to continue to do a good job at the work that I was doing. And at the same time, it, it really enjoyed the work I was doing out of the office, the other pursuits that I, I was giving my life to. So from the tragedy that had really changed my life came a, a different way of working and, and a much better career. Yeah, and, and that that idea and how what you experience fits in really nicely with what I'm trying to share within career coaching. Um, and it's a theme that I'm seeing emerge in our conversations with people in the podcast that a work-life balance is critical to success, both professionally and personally. Absolutely. Just kind of a corollary question to that. Um, we were wondering if you've experienced any burnout or if you have any advice on how to avoid burnout. No, I, I have never experienced burnout. I think that when I was early in my career, I had lots of extreme frustrations, roller coaster rides up and down as I was trying to get my legs underneath me. But I never experienced burnout and I don't think I've ever come close to it. I really continue to be excited to go to work every day, but I might've been on a path to burnout before I decided to make that, before that career change really happened to me. And I really think that when I changed my practice model, it really protected me from having, uh, being on track for being somebody who might have a burnout. Whether you knew that, you know, that was going to be the outcome or not, that that was an amazing choice that you made that was probably a little bit difficult. I mean, you, maybe not at the time because you had other priorities. <laughs> but if you didn't have the priority of taking care of your wife and being with her, um, the choice to like, eh, I'm going to back off on cases, that that might have been a really tough one to make. You know, I think it's really natural when we're young in whatever career we're in to try to be just as aggressive as possible, mm -hmm. push for uh, mm -hmm. more and more success. And uh, it was interesting to have kind of forced on me uh, 
the idea that no, 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 we're going to slow things down here and and focus more uh, on a more broadest approach to life, and it worked out really well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very encouraging. That's encouraging to me and to our audience as well. Can you tell us how your career aligns with your personal values? Uh, I'll tell you. I guess my personal values really come up uh, are, are a lot influenced as they are for everybody by the the way I grew up in, in my youth. And I got to tell you, I was from my youth, I was an outsider in society. I came from a family of a lot of successful people, su- successful doctors. My mom was a professor. My dad is a very high achieving attorney and other professionals who were prominent in their fields. Uh, lots of professors in my family. But I wasn't headed in that direction. I was a special ed kid. I'm dyslexic. I still am to this day. And back then, I was taking what was literally the short bus to school in it with a group of kids who had all kinds of different problems. So uh, I would leave my family's house where everybody were bookworms and uh, focused on scholarship to jumping on this short bus and heading to school with kids who had some amazing problems. Uh, my education track was a lot different from my siblings who were all on the Excel tracks in school. And I was on the verge of flunking out before they realized I was dyslexic and needed a lot of uh, special training. So from this perspective of sitting in this part of the school that was separate from everybody else and working with kids who were so different from everybody else, uh, I had this different perspective on society. And back then, my hero was Robin Hood. I used to read everything I could about Robin Hood because he was the guy who was on the edge, who was outside of where everybody else, all all the comfortable people were. And he was the guy who would risk everything to fight the power, to stand up for the people on the margins of society against the people at the top. And it was just kind of a natural evolution for me. Uh, as I thought about Robin Hood and I thought about where I was to to uh, realize that I wanted to be an attorney like my dad and I wanted to be like Robin Hood. I wanted to be out there fighting, using my skills to fight for the sort of people that I was in elementary school with. And that was something that I started thinking about then and uh, never got away from me. So the sort of practice I have is really focused on standing up for uh, individuals against large, powerful organizations. I love that. Uh, Robin Hood was my hero growing up too. I loved, I loved all the Robin Hood versions of the Disney story, all the movies, the books. I, that was really, that was a really special story to me too. The story that you share that you know you you were one of the special ed kids. You had dyslexia and it went di- undiagnosed for a long time. Like. Stories like yours, people who rise from difficulty and adversity to make big moves in life, those are those are my favorite stories too. Uh, when we were yeah. talking, when we were talking to our baseball scout, it was like you know, my favorite team is the Chicago Cubs because I love an underdog story, a Cinderella story. So your story gives everybody so much hope and encouragement, and I I love that for our listeners, and again, I love that for myself. Blake, what would you say are some of the hidden benefits of your career? Well, what I really love about my job uh, is that I get to listen to and tell stories. And the stories that I listen to are from the clients who come to me. And they are frequently telling me stories about 
a moment in their life when a decision was made, when something was done. And that moment was the most stressful and often the worst moment in their life. And they explained to me what happened and why they made the choices they did uh, and what put them there and what sort of help they think they need. And then it's my responsibility of listening to that story and figuring out the most effective way of telling it, the most effective time to tell it, the most effective way to use the building blocks of that story to, to tell their story in, uh, in using my legal training in whether I'm talking to opposing counsel or a judge or a jury, there's different techniques of using people's stories and communicating it to others. So that's what I love. I love listening to stories and I love getting to tell those stories. I think that fits in really well with <laughs> an English teacher, former English teacher, now a career counselor and a, a therapist. <laughs> yeah. We're all big on stories. Yeah. Can you tell us, Blake, what you wish you knew before you started this journey? I wish I knew at the beginning that my biggest regrets as I went through my career would be missed opportunities, missed chances to take cases the distance, missed chances to push myself a little further and bigger risks. You know, there have been great opportunities that have worked out very well for me, but the regrets that I have or that I didn't say to myself, man, you should take a chance on this. You should push this even further. And I've taken a lot of chances, but I wish I had taken even more. I wish I'd taken even bigger chances. That's you miss all the shots you don't take, right? <laughs> yeah. I personally, when I think about rock concerts, my favorite rock concerts, the ones that I really feel like I remember the most are not the ones that I've been to that were spectacular. I feel like I remember the ones that were two miles away that I just couldn't afford the money to go to or didn't prioritize going to those ones. It's the missed concerts I feel I, I remember even more than the ones that I made it to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting ready to go to my favorite artist a month from now, so I get that. And uh, I didn't ever go to concerts. I didn't take those kinds of risks, even though, you know, that's a, <laughs> a metaphor here. Um, but uh, definitely, I, I love that idea. Blake, in your career, were there any surprises along the way? You know, I got to say that's easy the, for me to answer. Some of the biggest surprises in my, my career have been the lessons I've learned from clients along the way. Uh, lessons that I didn't see coming that were so important. There, there's three that really stand out in my memory. Uh, one was from just the first couple of months of my career. I was actually still in law school and I was I had earned the credentials to allow me to be an intern attorney. So I had my own little stable of clients and files that I could take into the courtroom and argue for for clients every week. I get I'd get some new ones. And there was this one couple that I that I had. It was actually the guy was charged with a crime and he was African-American and his girlfriend was white. And he was in front of a judge who I considered still considered to be deeply influenced by his racist attitudes. Uh, I think he shouldn't have been on the bench and he was hurting people. But he really was unhappy to see this guy. Uh, and it was clear to me that it was that his girlfriend was an attractive woman and this judge didn't think that they should be together. And he was going off on this guy and giving him all kinds of punishment. I kept coming back whenever the judge would start to try to hand down a sentence on this guy. 
I would come back and argue with the judge and argue and argue again. And then he said, no, 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 I'm going to do it this way. This is what I'm going to do, blah, blah, blah. And I came back and I said, no, 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 no. I, this is why I think you should reconsider this and do this something else. And I came back about at least five times. And the judge got angrier and angrier and angrier with me, wasn't angry with my client. And uh, he began to threaten me with the consequences that he would take to my career. I was still a law student. So this guy was making threats that I thought, you know, could potentially really end at least my law school uh, internship and possibly my whole career. But I, I just couldn't stop because it, it seemed so wrong. Anyway, ultimately, I shut up. I stopped talking and uh, the judge handed down his sentence and the client went out to the hallway and he had to report to jail. I think he was going to do 30 days in jail, which was so long for this young kid with a financial crime. And actually, it was driving while license suspended. And uh, I felt so humiliated that I've been so unsuccessful in fighting for him. And as I walked out into the lobby where he and his girlfriend were waiting for me, and I was going to explain them what was happening next, they were beaming at me. They were smiling. And I, I couldn't, it didn't click why they would be happy after I had lost. And so I walked up to them and started to explain the procedure and what would happen next and next. And the two of them explained to me how much they appreciated me and how much they'd never had anybody stick up for them and stand up for them and fight for them before ever. And how much it meant to them that I had that I had done this. And uh, all of a sudden, as I thought about that, uh, it took a while for it to sink in. But as I, I thought about that, and I continue to reflect on this years later, I realized that what I learned was that I wasn't just there to win. I was there to show clients that I was listening to them, that I cared about them, and that what the, that they were important to me, and that that could be more important to them than a win. So it was very instructive and influential on me. Another story I, I remember was uh, just a few years later. Now I had my own practice. I started off as a solo attorney just right away. And uh, I was taking any case I could. And I was representing a young prostitute in court. And uh, she was talking to me and we were talking about her case. And she said something that really stuck in my mind. She talked about how she had started off working in one particular bordello house uh, where she was not earning very much money. And she said, the tips were terrible and the clients uh, didn't treat her with very much value and it was not a good experience. And then she decided to start her own business and this was early in the age of the internet and she put up her own website and she was working for herself and she more than tripled, she quadrupled her pay rate. And she said, everything changed, she said, all of a sudden, the guys who came to her to hire her for her services uh, thought that, oh, wow, she was something special. And she obviously, she was so expensive, she was really important. All of a sudden, they were treating her great. The tips were huge. They would pay her just to go out to dinner with them uh, and, and just sit across the table and talk with them. And she said it was all related, as far as she could tell, to just her increasing her rate of pay. And of course, I'm listening to her and she's in trouble and she's not making uh, she, she's in, with me in a court. So things are not going great for her. 
and she's a prostitute, not a career that anybody would I, idealize as being uh, uh, something you'd want to uh, try to achieve. But at the same time, she taught me something about people's perceptions and how they treat you. And I realized that I wasn't necessarily doing myself any favors by marketing myself as cut rate or inexpensive to clients. And I started to realize, oh, I think that my my pay rate should increase and the, my attitude towards myself, that I should value myself higher. So that was something that I learned from her. That actually, that conversation convinced me to go back to my office and rethink my pay scale. And I dramatically increased it and things, again, got better for me. Another story, and this is probably really one of the most important moments of my life, is when I took on the representation of Sister Anne Montgomery, uh, who is a well-known, internationally known peace activist. Uh, she's died since, but still well-known, still respected. There's things that are named for her, uh, including a community house in Washington, D.C. And... Uh, I decided to take her case when she was charged with uh, breaking into a, a, a naval base and uh, to protest nuclear weapons. And I was single at the time. Had, my, my wife had died just a year or two before. I can't remember. And my house was empty. And I said, well, you know, we've got your case coming up. I'm not really sure how long it's going to take before they actually charge this. You can stay with me in the, in the guest room. Well, she ended up staying with me for three years uh, on and off while her case got charged. We did the jury trial. Uh, I argued the case all the way through the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And she was with me uh, uh, through most of those three years staying with me. And I just had the most wonderful time with her. But one thing that she, she had chosen to make a theme of several themes of her action that resulted in her arrest and prosecution. And one of them was to to she she laid these out very deliberately and one of them was to transform people by speaking the truth and i had a lot of experience with representing peace activists and a lot of experience in the courtroom but i did not have a lot of experience in working with and living with somebody whose life was so devoted to others and so ethically controlled and she tried to do it through simple things like this one commitment to transforming people through speaking the truth during the, just this one case. And indeed, she transformed me. She changed me hmm. by, by the way that she lived, by the way that she fearlessly progressed through the court system. She didn't want to go to prison, but she, she, she had in the past and she would again. It was just she was so deliberate about what she did and it was so important for her about what she was doing. Uh, I had been representing people who for decades had been terrified of going to prison. It was the last thing that they wanted to have happen. For Sister Anne, it was a secondary, at the most secondary consideration, far less important than the reason that she was there. And her courage and her, her deliberate and meaningful way of living transformed me. I think I could listen to those stories <laughs> all day. And I suspect our listeners are uh, on the edge of their seats right now listening to those stories as well. Very, very powerful experiences that you have. And I, I love that even though you were help, there to help those people, that you took something away and you internalized that and it made it you made it your own story. I think that's incredibly powerful. Speaking of powerful things, can you tell us about a superpower that you use at your job? <laughs> well, you know. 
I, I would say that for me and for the lawyers I, I respect, probably right up at the top is being a good listener. And being a good listener is really an art form. And it's one that I continue to struggle with and try to uh, do better and better at. Uh, it really takes every ounce of your focus and concentration and body language and everything to be a good listener. Uh, everybody that I encounter in my work is somebody who is certain that they need to be heard. Judges know that they need to be heard. Witnesses want to be heard. Opposing counsels demand to be heard. Juries who aren't allowed to say anything want to be heard. They want their voices to be heard. Listening is a critical skill. Uh, but the other and probably the most important quality or superpower of any lawyer is to have trust. Creating trust, building trust, maintaining trust. Nothing could be more important that, than that for an attorney. And once trust is lost, whether it's with a client or a judge, it's almost impossible to get it back. Building that trust and keeping that trust is just so critical. You really can't help anybody out unless they trust you enough to tell you what you need to know to do your job. And one of the most important ways to build trust and to maintain trust is to listen and yeah. to make sure that whoever you're working with knows that you are listening. So those two powers are certainly interrelated. Yeah, those are really special superpowers. Um, and what a gift to your clients and uh, the world that you are mastering that. Blake, can you tell us something about you that people would not find on your resume? I guess what uh, people wouldn't find on my resume is that I am, in fact, a third generation attorney. My mother's father was an attorney. My father, who's still alive but is well retired, is an attorney. And I'm an attorney. Uh, there's a lot of kids in my family who've gone lots of different di directions. Navy, one of my siblings is a Navy commander. Several are dot-coms. One's a surgeon. I, I, I've got professors and everybody else in my family. And I'm the one who chose to follow the traditions of my father and grandfather. And that's something that I really like. I'm not sure what benefit I get from it. I, I don't think I've ever gotten a client from either one of them. I'm not sure how many legal lessons, mostly when I've asked my dad, hey dad, what does this pleading mean or what do you do legally in this situation? His answer is typically, I don't know. But I, I've enjoyed seeing what a career experience is like for attorneys. One thing that was always kind of special to me is growing up, whenever a neighbor would have a real serious problem, I'm sure they went to doctors for medical problems and dentists for teeth problems. But I saw neighbors again and again coming to my father to sit in uh, sit in one corner of our living room and talk about their legal issues. And so uh, I, I gained a sense of how lawyers are kind of the garage mechanics of society. We have the tools that let us get underneath the car that is our society and tinker with it and try to make it run a little bit better. And I started seeing that from a young age. And that's what one thing that made me decide I wanted to do this job. Well, that's very exciting that you got to see that growing up. And again, another great metaphor. You get lots of gold stars for your, for your metaphors, Blake. <laughs> Can you tell us for you what networking has looked like in your career? You know, I, I got to tell you that Networking and marketing and advertising have been 
I really feel just a disaster for me. And I don't think it's because it's a disaster for lawyers. I think that everybody has skills and everybody has things that they're good at. And mine is not marketing or advertising uh, or building as some of my colleagues are, like my best friend, Pat Palace, who just keeps building and building and building his own law firm up. And he, he has many lawyers working for him. I have never been successful at the sort of networking with other law firms and things that bring cases in. For me, the sort of networking I've done has really just been, from the beginning, uh, word of mouth advertising. I have always walked into courtrooms and made my best arguments for my clients. And when I have walked out, I have, I'm ne I have never been surprised to have people walk up to me and say, hey, uh, I like the sort of work that you do. I'm really interested. I have this case. I really need your help. And I've seen them not walk up to other attorneys and I've seen people come to me. So I've always had as many business cards as I could with me because that has been the frequent result. Other types of networking, the more conventional types of advertising and things have never worked for me. It's always just been word of mouth and people who were there to see me in court and decided that they wanted me to represent them. That's really cool to hear. <laughs> Very inspiring. How much of the time do you get to spend doing what you love at your job? And what do you have to do the rest of the time? Fortunately, and I am 30 years into my career and I have become more and more efficient at making my practice run the way that I want it to run. And because I have an excellent staff, I have a relatively small but excellent staff, I have a staff that's fabulous at doing the sort of work that they need to do to get me ready to do the things that I really like doing. So they do the sort of things that I don't like doing and I'm pretty much left with just the most interesting stuff, the parts that I really love doing. There are you know, little things I don't like doing, you know, tax and getting payroll and uh, health uh, benefits paperwork out. But generally, the sort of work that I, I do when I'm working for clients is stuff that I pretty much always really enjoy doing. And since I get to do that, I, I get to spend the rest of my time that I'm not working doing uh, things that I also really enjoy, which tend to be different versions of storytelling. Uh, my wife and I, we push ourselves really hard to have interesting experiences uh, and I try to tell the story of these experiences of, of ours and of our friends, people who are doing interesting things. I, I try to tell their stories through photography. I see it as an extension of what I'm doing for a living. And what I particularly enjoy about photography is that it's about focusing on a single moment within a single experience. I enjoy how photography requires that I block out all the other distractions uh, around me and try to focus on one thing. I often find that I will set myself up in a, uh, somewhere to take a picture of something that I expect is going to happen. And hours might pass by and I barely notice that they've gone by. And even if it's only 15 minutes, I'll find myself wiping all kinds of sweat from my brow because I, I haven't realized how I've got my body tense and just waiting for this because I'm so focused on what's going on with my camera and what's going on in front of me. I try to remember the lessons that I get from photography and apply them to the rest of my life. I, I expect a lot of people lead lives that have as many distractions as I do. One of my favorite things to do around dinner time, close to dinner time, is to sit in front of the TV. I'll have a laptop in my lap where I'm answering emails. I'll have the remote control for the TV in one hand, and I'll have a beer in the other hand. 
and then I'll be trying to talk to my wife while I've got this going on. So I've got multiple different distractions that are just that I kind of enjoy keeping me from focusing on anything. And I try to remember how photography reminds me to try to block out things and just focus on the one thing that's the most important to me, like talking to my wife or, of course, that beer. Uh, so I enjoy the benefits of of the lessons I get from photography. I, I'm a big fan of your photography. I I see what you post online and uh, I, I'm going to enjoy your photography even more now because I know the story behind it. And, you know, I, I keep hitting on that storyteller theme here, but, you know, I'm a storyteller. Leslie's a storyteller. You're a storyteller. So I, I that's a big bonding thing for us. Um, but, you know, that's why we're here on this podcast is to tell these stories. And so it's really cool that we get to have you tell your story to us and to our listeners. And, you know, that that's the same reason why I'm passionate about career coaching. So all of this is a really nice neat package. <laughs> well, thank I'm you. I'm glad to be very, a part of this and a part of your podcast. And I'm wish, wishing you success with your with the people that you're helping out. Wait, can I ask you a bonus question? Absolutely. If there was an aspiring attorney listening to this podcast, what words of wisdom would you share with them? Well, first of all, I would say that there's a lot of people out there who will say, oh, you would be a good attorney because of this quality or that quality or the other quality. And in my experience, the best attorneys have a broad spectrum of different qualities and that anybody who thinks that there's one type of quality that you should have is probably wrong. And anybody who thinks that you should be somebody who does particularly well on tests or things are probably really wrong. I found that some of the most successful attorneys I've known, the ones who have really had phenomenal success for their clients are people who were ne probably never academic standouts, but they had other qualities that helped them to get where they were. One quality that is totally underestimated uh, in academics is people's ability for compassion because compassionate people who reach out and communicate to clients that they really care about people are the sort of people who have lots of friends around them and they bring in clients. And because they have a lot of clients, because they have this compassion, they have more opportunities to do good. So whatever qualities you think might be important to becoming an attorney, if you're interested in being becoming an attorney, don't worry about those qualities. Just become a lawyer as quickly as possible because you might be surprised in that you have lots of qualities that will make you a good attorney. We're so, so thankful that you joined us. Um, I learned a lot. I knew some of your stories, but I'm really glad I got to learn some more details about them um, and just got to have a nice visit with you. Yeah. It was really nice, you too. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you. Thank you, Blake. Thanks so much for joining us today on Carpe Vitae. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform. You can support us by liking, sharing, and leaving a comment. Make sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. You can also support the longevity of this podcast with a small monthly donation. You can find the link for our donations on anchor.fm. We appreciate your support tremendously. Thanks also to the hugely talented Amos Vega for composing our theme song. If you have suggestions for guests, please email me at sylvia.arpkey at youraspengrove.com. 
That's Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A, dot arpke, A-R-P-K-E. Join us next week with our guest, Devlin McConnell, a former scout for Major League Baseball. <laughs>